Well, thank you very much. Um, I guess there's no such thing as a free lunch, so I'm going to uh, spoil yours by, with my talk. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be here at uh, Ohio State. And I'd like to thank uh, Professor Little not only for inviting me and extending a great deal of hospitality to me once I got here, but continually re-inviting me over the last three years, which have been a, a bit uh, busy, as you can imagine. I'd also like to thank Ann Powers for making sure that I actually arrived here. Um, I've just come down from uh, Ottawa, and then the Mershon Centre for making the trip possible and the, uh, the other sponsors of the series. Um, now, I know this uh, lecture series has originated around two main questions. Firstly, the political influence of Islam, and then secondly, the successes and failures of democratization. Clearly, these two issues dominate Iraq today, but I think in a powerful and one could say extreme form. From at, uh, from at least 2003, we have witnessed the rise of a radical Islamism in Iraqi society, both in its indigenous form, which I will look at today, but also in the move of transnational jihadis personified by the Jordanian Abu Musab al-Zakawi and his organization into the country. In addition, the U.S. led the invasion itself. Um, in addition... With the U.S.-led invasion itself, we have seen the first post-9-11 example of the United States' attempt at exogenous democratization, trying to transform uh, the Middle East by using military force to change a regime. I think at this juncture, it's fair to say that this external promotion of democracy has failed, or at least hasn't been a glowing success, and one would hope stands little chance of being repeated again uh, for some time to come. Um, to put all this in perspective, I thought we'd start today briefly by summarizing what we know about Iraq. Firstly, and most obviously, it has a population of around 27.5 million. Of these, a large percentage, 40%, are under 14 years of age, and close to 70% of the population live in urban areas. However, the statistics that cause the most controversy are those seeking to describe the ethnic and religious makeup of the country. Now, throughout, it's, I think it's key to remember that throughout Iraq's history, all statistical information relating to these issues have tended to be based on approximations. No one has taken a reliable census of ethnic and religious makeup in Iraq. Today, the CIA puts the Arab population at 75 to 80 percent and the Kurds at 15 to 20 percent. Within the Arab majority population, Shia Arabs, those following the Shia section of, of, of Islam, comprise 60 to 65%, with Sunnis making up around 20% of the population. So that's your base but very imprecise uh, demographic statistics. I think of greater importance to the United States at the present time is the 2,425 U.S. service personnel that have been killed in the country since the beginning of the invasion in March 2003. But again, to put this in perspective, the website Iraq Body Count, which our own Foreign Secretary has, 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 has cited, conservatively estimates that between 35,119 and 39,296 Iraqi civilians have also been killed since the invasion. However, what I want to do this afternoon is explain the rise of political Islamism in Iraq by taking you beyond these highly contested figures. Um, I want to place Iraq in its contemporary uh, uh, historical and political context. 
And I want to do this by focusing on three main themes. Firstly, by looking at the legacy of 35 years of Ba'athist rule, what this legacy has left the country. Secondly, I want to look at the indigenous vehicles of Islamic radicalization. And these are two groups, I think, the Association of Muslim Scholars, the AMS, that has mobilized within the Sunni community, and Muqtada al-Sadr's organization that has done the same thing with the comparative rhetoric within the Shia community. Thirdly, I want to conclude today by focusing on the dominant issue in Iraqi politics today, the potential for civil war fueled by the collapse of the state and the rise of sectarian violence perpetrated by militias. Sadly, it is this political and military dynamic, the slide into civil war, that stands the greatest chance of shaping Iraqi politics for the next generation. If Iraq follows this course, then we'll see the increased radicalization of its politics with violence justified in the name of communalism and Islamism, dominating the country and destabilizing the region beyond its borders. Given the focus of the talk given to me by Bill and the time constraints, I will not focus on either the Kurdish parties dominant in the north of the country or indeed the Shia parties that came back to the country after regime change, the exiles brought back in in the wake of the U.S. military, the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, and Dawa. But clearly, I'd be happy to expand uh, the discussion to encompass these groups in Q&A afterwards. But given the time and the focus, Islamic politics, I think the Association of Muslim Scholars and Muqtada al-Sadr are the best examples in Iraq today, and indeed their success and failures point to a possible way forward, a more positive trajectory for Iraqi politics. So hopefully it won't be all doom and gloom. Right, in order to understand Iraqi politics, we have to map the legacy left to the country by 35 years of Ba'athist rule. Since the formation of the state in 1920, uh, it is the policies and the power of the Ba'ath regime that has done most to shape Iraqi society. So if we seek to understand Iraqi society today, to a large extent what we're doing is seeking to understand what the Ba'ath Party has done to it. Since the state's creation in 1920, Iraqi regimes, because of their perceived domestic and international vulnerability, have with varying degrees of success sought to maximize their autonomy from the, the, the ruling elite from society. This process reached its apex, its pinnacle, under the Ba'athist regime built by Hassan al-Bakr after the coup that brought the party to power in 1968 and consolidated after Saddam Hussein seized the presidency in 1979 from Hassan al-Bakr. A powerful set of state institutions built up through the 1970s and 1980s reshaped Iraqi society breaking organized resistance to Ba'athist rule and effectively atomizing the population, taking it down to the base unit of the individual. Although, uh, although figures for oil revenue going to the Iraqi government in the 1970s and 1980s remain disputed, it's safe to say that after the oil price shock of 1973-74, vast sums of money began to flow into the government's treasury. By 1990, 21% of the active workforce and 40% of all Iraqi households were directly reliant on government payments for their survival. 
thus changes in the political economy of Iraq from the 1970s onwards delivered massive and unprecedented power to those who controlled the state. Due to land reform programs instigated by the Ba'ath Party, the state became the largest landowner in Iraq. The state funneled a proportion of this newfound wealth into social security systems, new housing projects, and investment in health and education. By the 1970s, the Iraqi population was increasingly linked directly and individually to the largesse of state institutions funded almost totally by oil wealth. The 1970s also saw all political opposition to the Ba'ath Party violently broken or driven into exile. Organizations within society beyond the control of the party were either co-opted into the state or broken by the massive and unrelenting deployment of violence. At the same time, the regime invested time and energy in constructing a version of Iraqi nationalism that would suit its needs. This focused on the centrality of a strong state to deliver development to its population and to, and to defend it from the host of external enemies that Ba'athism perceived to be intent on bringing Iraq to its knees. For the majority of the 1970s and early 1980s, this, idea, uh, this ideology was militantly secular, aiming to construct a single national discourse that could rally all communities to the nation's and the party's defense. This produced results. 80% of the rank and file and 20% of the officer corps of the old Iraqi army were Shia. Yet they fought loyally and tenaciously for Iraq through the grueling eight-year war with Iran, a state that has a Shia majority. Now, during the 1980s and 1990s, however, both the Iraqi state and its relationship with society were dramatically transformed. The eight-year war with Iran, the 1990-91 Gulf War, and finally the imposition of 13 years of drastic economic sanctions changed the Iraqi state, Iraqi society, and indeed Saddam's strategy of rule. From their application in 1990 till at least 1997, when the UN supervised oil revenues began to arrive, sanctions proved to be extremely effective. They restricted the government's access to large-scale funding. From 1991 until 2003, to liberation, the effect of both government policy and sanctions led to hyperinflation, widespread poverty, and malnutrition. The historically generous state welfare provision that had been central to the regime's governing uh, strategy disappeared overnight, and the government in Baghdad was forced to cut back on resources it could uh, devote to the official armed forces and the police. Instead, Saddam concentrated his energies on keeping alive the informal networks of patronage and the security services that underpinned his rule, actually marginalizing the Ba'ath Party as a vehicle for social mobilization and control and relying on more informal, flexible, and diffuse methods of domination. The large and well-educated middle class that formed the bedrock of Iraqi society became impoverished, and Iraq's once complex and all-pervading bureaucracy became hollowed out. Bribery was commonplace as civil servants' officials, as civil servants' wages became, uh, became valueless. Many pro uh, professionals left public service to take their chances in the public sector. Baghdad had some of the best educated taxi drivers I'd ever met when I was there before regime change, or they simply fled into exile. A million Iraqis living in 
Amman and around Jordan uh, before 2003. During the 1990s, the trauma of war and a rapid decline in living standards and state services led to the evolution of two dominant ideological trends. The first was a strengthening of a militant Iraqi nationalism visible to anyone who traveled to the country before 2003. The 13 years of suffering under externally imposed sanctions fueled the rise of a powerful nationalism born of a stubborn pride that Iraq had managed to survive despite everything that had occurred. The second ideological trend was what we could call the re-Islamification of Iraqi society. During the 1990s, as the official institutions of the state lost capacity, a space was created for the rise of a society-wide Islamic piety. Faced with the trauma of war and poverty, the population began to retreat into the certainties of religious observance. The Ba'athist regime allowed this to happen, letting a depoliticized Islam fill the space the retreating state had left. In 1993, the regime sought both to encourage this movement but also to control its rise by launching the Enhancement of Islamic Faith campaign. This focused on a massive mosque-building campaign, restricting the consumption of alcohol and gambling, promoting religious education and religious programming in the media. Um, the Saddam Hussein set about building, much to the horror of a lot of my Baghdadi friends, the largest mosque in the Muslim world on what had been Baghdad's race course. This was the kind of personification of his enhancement of religious faith campaign. The regime even allowed Sunni clerics to politicize their sermons so long as they focused their anger on the U.S. and the U.N., as long as they externalized the radicalism of their sermons. As we know, as we know sanctions along with Saddam's regime came to an end when the U.S. troops reached Baghdad on April 9, 2003. The unintended consequences of the U.S.-led invasion further traumatized the population and drastically expanded the political space available for radical Islamic ideology to flourish. Uh, the speed with which U.S. and coalition forces removed Saddam Hussein's regime clearly impressed the Iraqi population. In Baghdad, in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of uh, the regime's fall, there was little doubt that the U.S. military superiority appeared absolute. However, the U.S. military was unable to impose and guarantee order across Iraq. What began in April 2003 as a lawless celebration of the demise of Saddam's regime grew into three weeks of uncontrolled looting and violence. Civil servants simply didn't return to work after the ceasefire, instead, of, instead opting to protect their families and their property as best they could. Their offices around the country were stripped by looters and burnt. Um, with 17 out of, Iraqis, out of the Iraqi government's 23 ministry buildings in Baghdad being completely destroyed. This combination of, the combination of war, sanctions fatigue, and rampant criminality led to a complete state, break, uh, uh, state breakdown. In the aftermath of regime change, the Iraqi state ceased to exist in any meaningful form. The resultant security vacuum gave birth to three distinct sets of groups deploying violence and ultimately today driving Iraq towards civil war. The first are the industrial strength criminal gangs who are still the most potent source of violence and instability, making up an estimated 80% of all violence that dominates Iraq today. 
The second source of violence is the plethora of independent militias estimated to hold between 60 and 102,000 fighters in their ranks. These militias have overtly organized and legitimized themselves by reference to sectarian ideology. Although they may enjoy little popular support, their existence is a testament to the inability of the Iraqi government to guarantee the personal safety of Iraqis on the basis of equal citizenship, not sectarian identity. Finally, the final set of organizations fueling the violence is the insurgency launched to drive U.S. forces out of Iraq. In the aftermath, uh, in the aftermath of regime change, the insurgency was born in a reactive and highly localized fashion as, US, as the U.S. military's inability to control Iraq became apparent. The result had been that from its birth in the summer of 2003, the insurgency is estimated to have grown between 20 and 50,000 fighters strong, but they're organized in between 50 and 74 autonomous groups scattered across greater Baghdad and the northwest of the country. Now, to conclude this section, to, to conclude the ramifications of both 35 years of Ba'athist control and the collapse of the state in the aftermath of regime change. Iraqi society before 2003 had been effectively atomized, with all non-governmental organization having been broken by the military and the economic power of the Ba'athist regime. Put simply, there was no functioning civil society in Iraq before regime change. However, the regime's own policies, combined with the extreme trauma of war and sanctions left a large political space for those deploying both Islam and nationalism, and they have flourished. The result is that Iraqi society today has been shaped by these twin ideological currents. In, April 2004, in an April 2004 opinion poll, 67% uh, of those questioned identified religion as the most important expression of their identity, with only 12% nationwide citing ethnicity. The dominance of Islam as a marker of identity runs in tandem with a strong support across the whole of Iraqi society for democracy, but not necessarily along a European or US model. Of 3,000 Iraqis polled in May 2004, three quarters said that they wanted to live in a moderate Islamic democracy, not a secular liberal one. Nationalism and indeed, intriguingly, the remnants of Ba'athist ideology appear to have resonance within the population, with the majority supporting a strong interventionist state. The Iraqi Center for Research and Strategic Studies, I think the foremost polling organization in Iraq today, found that 64.7% of those questioned, quote, favored a politically centralized unitary state as opposed to federation, with 67% saying they wanted both fiscal and administrative centralization. Now, the Oxford Research International uh, Organization, I have to declare an interest of which I'm a consultant, polled in February, March, and June 2004, and in November 2005, and that's probably considered the most uh, constant and accurate polling organization in the country. And this found broadly similar views. In February 2004, and November 2005, respondents to the question, which structure should Iraq have in the future, found 79% answering in 2004 and 70% in 2005, agreeing with the statement, one unified Iraq with central government in Baghdad. Now let's turn after that introduction and kind of historical 
and political grounding to examine the use of Islam in post-Saddam political mobilization. Now, this is my, uh, my a- alibi or get-out cause, because the, the pres- at the present time, the task of mapping and comprehending politics in Iraq is bound to be tentative and at best partial. Those who are politically active have very good reason to fear for their lives on a daily, if not hourly, basis. From a standing start in April 2003, political parties have found, obviously found it very difficult to construct organizations capable of reaching out across anything approaching the geographical extent of the country. This means that individual parties, as opposed to coalitions built to fight elections, have not captured mass support, and their ability to mobilize significant sections of the population varies from month to month, depending on the levels of violence, but also depending on the issues they choose to focus on and how they choose to mobilize the population. Against this background, one can divide those parties overtly deploying Islam to mobilize the population into two broad categories. One set set attempting to fashion a radical approach to deploy both Islam and nationalism to undermine or at least fundamentally rework the terms of the U.S.-managed transition, and the second group that has chosen to work within the governing elite to bolster and expand the very nascent institutions created by the U.S. occupation. Today, I want to focus on this first set, the radicals who have been responsible for the vast majority of the political violence that has dominated the country. The radical groups uh, are dominated on the Shia side by Muqtada al-Sadr's party, called broadly the Sadrist Current, and amongst the Sunni population by the Association of Muslim Scholars. Both groups have largely shaped their program by campaigning against the U.S. occupation, focusing on Islamism and nationalism as key markers of oppositional mobilization and encouraging the use of violence as a tool to change the post-war political system. Now, interestingly, the elites of both organizations are largely indigenous, meaning that they stayed in the country throughout the 35 years of Ba'athist rule. Because of this, the ideological legacies of Ba'athist rule can clearly be seen in the discourses that they've deployed and uh, and can clearly completely be seen to a large degree in how those discourses have been um, taken by the populations they're targeting. Now, first, let's turn to look at Muqtada al-Sadr, who's been the political figure who has successfully rallied these nationalist and radical Islamic trends amongst Shia sections of the population. Now, if we go back to before regime change, following the 1991 Gulf War and the drastic shortfall of resources imposed by sanctions, Saddam's regime allowed the Shia religious establishment to expand its charitable organizations, utilizing donations from the Shia community abroad. The regime's weakness was exploited by Muqtada's father, uh, the most senior religious figure in the country at the time, Ayatollah Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr. He built a large charitable network stretching from Baghdad to the south of the country. As Sadr Sr.'s influence increased, he fatally married this social network with a powerful political message. His sermons heard by thousands that gathered around the mosque that he was preaching in um, were critical of Saddam and called for an Iranian-style rule by jurists to replace him. Now, unsurprisingly, he was murdered by the government in 1999 just after he'd finished preaching. And his son, Muqtada, 
partly was placed in um, house arrest, but partly managed to survive, unlike his two brothers who were murdered in 1999 also. And he inherited his father's radical anti-establishment politics, but also the remnants of this charitable network that his father had set up. After the fall of the regime, Sada used these rejuvenated charitable networks to give him an advantage in grassroots mobilization amongst the urban poor. He, in effect, set up a system of government moving in to fill the post-invasion vacuum, especially in Sada City, which is a slum in Baghdad that holds roughly about two million people. And his, his militia, the Mahdi army, set up a rough and ready order in this area and across the south of Iraq. At one point, Sada's organization controlled as much as 90% of the mosques in Sada City. Sada City renamed after the invasion in honor of Muqtada's father. Sada sought to organize those who lost most during the 1990s, namely the poor, underemployed city dwellers. This group had suffered from the occupation's failure to deliver order and sustained economic development. But Sutter is not just a rabble-rouser. His support extends into the lower ranks of the Shia religious establishment, where he has found significant backing from young clerics attracted to his youth, his lack of religious education, and his promise of a shortcut to moral and political influence. Younger clerics face a long and very uncertain educational process before they graduate to become senior clerics. Within Iraq's holiest city, Najaf, Sada has also capitalized on the tensions between the large number of returning exiles and those who, stay and who stayed and feel threatened by the arrival of better-funded, better-educated former exiles. To rally this comparatively disparate group of supporters, Sada has made use of a passionate rhetoric that merges militant Islam with a commitment to radical, uh, with a commitment to militant nationalism. He downs Ayatollah Sistani, the the most senior uh, religious figure in in Iraqi Shiadom, as a foreigner, as an Iranian. He damns the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, exiled in Iran, as also foreign blow-ins who are complicit in collaboration with the United States. Um, In doing so, he's clearly set himself against both the traditional Shia religious establishment, the Hausa, this group of senior ayatollahs based in the Najaf, the returning Shia political parties, uh, the Supreme Council of the Islamic Revolution in Iraq and Dawah, and also the U.S. occupation. Now, in the the run-up to the handover of power to hand-picked Iraqi politicians that happened on June 28, 2004, Sada's rhetoric and actions became more and more extreme in an attempt to convince Paul Bremer and the Coalition Provisional Authority that he could not be excluded from any post-occupation political settlement. The U.S. authorities responded by closing down Sada's newspaper and arresting Sheikh Mustafa al-Yakoubi, one of his key deputies in Najaf on charges of murder. Sada's response was predictable, and it was the revolts, it were a series of revolts in the first week of April and again in August 2004 in key towns across the south of Iraq, Basra in the far south, Amara, Kut, Nazaria, Najaf, Kufa, and Kabbalah, as well as Baghdad itself. Now, this indicates two things, I think. 
Firstly, that Sada's organization had been preparing for just such a confrontation since regime change onwards and had been organizing its militia, the Mahdi army, with this in mind. And that's confirmed by by my own interviews with key players in Baghdad in May 2003. Secondly, and more intriguingly, I think, the geographic scale of the southern uprisings indicated that other smaller militias and local armed groups were in effect bandwagoning, using Sadr's confrontation to launch their own strikes against coalition forces, trying to create an autonomous space for their own political ambitions. However, by directly confronting U.S. forces, Sadr's organization clearly overreached itself and was organizationally weakened by the extended confrontation. Intriguingly, the first revolt was greeted by a rise in Sutter's popularity in opinion polls. However, the second revolt was focused on the holy shrine in Najaf and had the opposite effect, alienating religious Shias from Sutter's movement that was then seen as reckless and putting uh, Najaf in danger. The result was that Sutter adopted a hybrid approach using Iraqi nationalism and radical Islamism to overtly denounce both the occupation and the political process as illegitimate, while allowing his followers to run candidates in the first Iraqi election in January 2005. This process allowed Sadr to take 29% of the 140 140 seats that the Shia bloc, the United Iraqi Alliance, won, while still criticizing the process criticizing the presence of American troops and damning the inefficiencies of the state. Uh, The United Iraqi Alliance, um, Sadr then overtly joined the United Iraqi Alliance ticket in December, in the December 2005 elections, the last elections that we had. The United Iraqi Alliance won 47% of the seats and Sadr's organization won 28% of those, of, of the total of 120 that the United Iraqi Alliance won out of 250. However, the constituency that Sadr aspires to represent, the economically disadvantaged and the politically alienated, has not disappeared either since regime change or since the elections of 2005. And it's this poor, largely urban uh, population that has been most harmed by the lawlessness, the lack of uh, the state, the lack of order. The anger and alienation that he managed to mobilize was born of economic deprivation and a perception that the new government was remote and unconcerned with the plight of ordinary Iraqis. As long as Iraqi politics continues to be dominated by state failure and violence, Sadr, or politicians very like him, will have continued access to a constituency large enough to fuel radical politics question the legitimacy of the Iraqi government and be quick to use violence, keeping in mind that Iraq is one of the the most highly armed societies in the world. Now let's turn and look at a similar organization amongst the Sunni community of Iraq. The radical fusion of Islamism and nationalism amongst the Sunni section of Iraq's population is manifest by two interlinked sets of organizations. Firstly, there are the disparate insurgent groups trying to drive the U.S. forces out of the country. Now, the insurgency started off as a highly localized reaction to the invasion and the collapse of the Ba'athist regime. This meant for the first 12 to 18 months of the occupation, the revolt was largely fought by a set of small, scattered groups formed through personal, family, and geographic links 
with very loose connections between each group. However, I think interestingly, in 2005, a degree of organizational consolidation has been detected around four or five main groups who, although still organizationally autonomous, have gained a degree of unity by fusing a powerful appeal to Iraqi nationalism with an austere and extreme Sunni Salafism. Politically, it is a coalition, not a single coherent party, the Association of Muslim Scholars, that has sought to represent those involved in the insurgency and beyond that, this wider, alienated Sunni community. The fact that this took the form of a coalition, I think, is again indicative of the fractured nature of the Iraqi polity and especially the fractured nature of the Sunni community without religious uh, structures to unite it and and with the Ba'ath Party collapsed, which was the main political vehicle for its expression. Formed five days after the fall of Saddam Hussein, the Association of Muslim Scholars, the AMS, consciously rejected the label of a political party, arguing instead that it should be seen as an authority on religion and Islamic law that had within it different trends, different um, parties. By the middle of 2004, the organization claimed to represent 6,000 Sunni mosques across the country, 80% of the national total. The AMS actively sought to create an ideological justification for the insurgency, constructing a discourse that that merged their own interpretation of Islamic jurisprudence with Iraqi nationalism. In 2004, the diversity of the groups fighting U.S. forces was mirrored in the variety of imagery and symbols that the AMS deployed. It used pan-Arab rhetoric to target the remnants of the Ba'ath Party who formed the core of those initial insurgent groups. But as the nature, the core nature of the insurgency changed, becoming more violent and more Islamized, the AMS's rhetoric was transformed. It increasingly began to deploy Salafi notions of violence and martyrdom. This process accelerated with the AMS arguing that when the Islamic Ummah, the community of believers, is attacked by unbelievers, there is no room for leniency, pliability, or a peaceful call to Islam, Dawah. Instead, it was the duty of all true believers to give their lives to the jihad against foreign occupation. In rhetoric typical of Salafi doctrine, resistance was now described by the AMS in terms of the struggle against a tyrannical government and a foreign occupation. This struggle was a personal obligation on all good Muslims that if, the, that if ignored, ran the uh, risk of denying the unity of God, Taweed. Again, in line with Salafi interpretations of Islam, this implicitly redrew the line between believers, those fighting the jihad, and non-believers, those involved in the coalition or involved in the government. In effect, giving jihad is the right to kill fellow Muslims they thought had strayed from the true path of Islam, thus becoming non-believers. The peak of the AMS's influence was in the run-up to and in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. military's attack on the town of Fallujah, northwest of Baghdad. This event in November 2004 clearly caused widespread outrage across Sunni sections of society as the town was assaulted by long-range artillery, U.S. airplanes, and large numbers of U.S. troops. The anger at this event allowed the AMS to call for an outright boycott of the January 2005 elections 
a call that was widely accepted by the Iraqi Sunni community, with less than 2% of the Sunni-dominated province of Anbar, for example, turning out to vote. However, and interestingly, the ramifications of this boycott, the exclusion of large-scale Sunni representation from parliament, government, and most crucially, the drafting of the constitution may have broken, temporarily, we don't know yet, the AMS's support. The boycott was perceived by a section of the politically active Sunni community to have been a, a mistake. The AMS's refusal to admit this or to drop its ban on participation in the government or indeed the elections of December 2005 has sidelined it, allowing others to gain the initiative in rallying the Sunni population to take part in the democratic process. Now, to conclude this section, the personnel who form the core of Muqtada al-Sadr's organization and the Association of Muslim Scholars are primarily indigenous, those who stayed, out of, uh, those who stayed in Iraq through Saddam's rule. Now, again, I think there's a strong argument personified by uh, our friend Congressman Biden to say that Iraq is divided down ethnic lines, that Iraq has three communities, Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. But certainly in my interviewing in Iraq and, and my continued interaction with Iraq is sadly now because of the violence over telephone interviewing or those I interview outside the country, there's another division, which I, I would argue is equal, if not more politically important, and that's the division between insiders and outsiders. The two groups that I focused on, the Association of Muslim Scholars and uh, the Sadrist Current, style themselves and are, and are largely insiders. And what they're seeking to do is use the common ideological trends left over from the Ba'ath Party running through the country to mobilize uh, po popular opinion. As such, they had an organizational head start on the returning exiled parties in creating the capacity to mobilize the population. Although these indigenous activists clearly suffered under Ba'athist rule, they have also been shaped along with the wider population by its ideology. This meant that the Sadrist current and the AMS were much more prone to deploy a militant Iraqi nationalism and a violent hostility to the U.S. occupation. As the occupation failed to stabilize the country and deliver basic services to the population, these two groups capitalized on the popular alienation, suspicion, and anger. The Ba'athist regime had monopolized and in the process delegitimized secular rhetoric thus making it unavailable or at least extremely unpopular post for, uh, as a post-Saddam political force. The secularists running in the elections have, consider of, of, of continually, though, vast though in spite of vast financial backing from both Britain and America, got very low returns at the ballot box. Um, however, the Ba'athists sought to utilize but did not fully colonize Islamism. This allowed both Sadr and the AMS to fuse Islamism with radical nationalism, thus creating a populist, anti-occupation discourse that struck a chord with a society angered by the occupation and its inability to deliver what they so desperately needed. However, in January 2005, as the political process got underway, the radicals were faced with a crucial decision, whether to boycott the elections, held as they were under close American stewardship, or to take part and share in the fruits of government. Sadr, after much uh, shuffling, indecision, and mendacity, 
took part in the December 2005 elections along with the vast majority of the electorate. The AMS did not. It was this decision that secured Sutter's place in national politics but allowed a much more moderate electoral grouping to Wafak to become the main voice of the Sunni community in Iraq, winning 44 seats in the parliament and 16% of the votes. The alienation and anger that both Sadr and the AMS sought to mobilize is clearly still very much a dominant current within Iraqi politics. However, 70% of the Iraqi electorate decided in the election of December 2005 to give the political, set, the political system set up by the U.S. a chance to work. They risked their lives to vote in the hope that the new government, sadly still yet to be formed five months after this event, that would deliver what they so desperately needed. If this government fails to deliver, then the forces of radicalism are still active in Iraqi society and still very capable of capitalizing on the indigenous alienation and anger of the population. Right, to conclude, Iraq today is desperately in need of a state. I think if you want to take one issue from this lecture to understand Iraqi politics, it's the complete absence of state administration, of legal, rational, bureaucratic capacity across the whole of the country. Political mobilization is primarily driven by the collapse of state institutions in April 2003 but is also shaped by the legacy of 35 years of Ba'athist rule. For the country to stabilize, its governing institutions, bureaucratic, military, and political, are going to have to be rebuilt from the ground up across the territorial extent of the country. Crucial to the, governing, the government's ability to perform these tasks is the veracity of the claim to binding authority over its citizens and ultimately over all actions taking place in the area under its jurisdiction, to paraphrase Max Weber. The degree to which a state has reached this ideal type can be judged by the ability of its institutions to impose and guarantee the rule of law, to penetrate society, mobilize a population, and extract resources. Ultimately, the sustainability of a state's capacity is anchored into the extent to which the actions, its actions are judged to be legitimate in the eyes of its citizens. This is not primarily an issue of ethnic identity or, indeed, religious conviction. Instead, the evolution of state power is intimately linked to the ability of state institutions to penetrate society in a regularized fashion and become central to the population's ongoing and daily strategies of survival. The sociologist Michael Mann and the political scientist Joe Migdal have argued that the success of this process the positive relevance of the state to everyday lives of its citizens is key to society tolerating state institutions, but ultimately the growth of state legitimacy. The growth of stable state institutions with a meaningful presence in people's lives forms the framework within which the second longer-term aspect of successful intervention can be enacted, the reconstruction of an Iraqi nation. In a territory like Iraq's, where the state has clearly failed to obtain the monopoly over the collective deployment of violence, public goods, services, economic subsistence, and ultimately the very survival of yourself and your family are obtained through ad hoc and informal channels. This is what's driven the rapid growth in sectarian politics in Iraq over the last year and a half, two years. People have sought out whatever local group 
militia and identity that could provide them with a modicum of predictability and security in times of profound uncertainty. The result has been the further fracturing of the polity with local, sub-state and indeed ethnic identities providing the immediate basis for political organization. This is where we are in Iraq today. Conversely, the future study of Iraq rests on the successful creation of countrywide state capacity. This would have the opposite effect. It would reestablish a framework within, a collective, within which a collective identity based on a shared vision of the future could be built. This shared vision would certainly be shaped by the population's deeply held religious beliefs. A successful Iraqi state would be one in which Islam played a major role. However, under this rubric, civil society could become then the vehicle for building a national collective sense of identity that could rival or begin to replace sub-state centrifugal political mobilization that we've seen unfolding over the last couple of years. A collective, a collective appreciation of the administrative capacity and a loyalty towards the state would bind individual, individuals together and then to the state. If this does not happen, and I think, to be frank, it's a long shot from where we stand, if the new Iraqi government elected in December 2005 but still to take office does not build a set of inclusive, efficient state institutions, then the violent Islamic radicalism of Sada and the AMS will once again come to dominate Iraq as a country and, will and, and, and the country will further descend into a sectarian civil war that will destabilize Iraq, the region, and I'd say the international community beyond. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. All right. Yes, sir. I have a question uh, regarding Islamism and nationalism. Being on the opposite side of the spectrum, assuming you join forces now for the creation of a state of the suggestion in Iraq, would that be a trouble for the future since both are really opposite? Maybe now they join for a specific purpose. No, I think you're right that um, traditional scholarship or, uh, <clears throat> has put them at two opposite um, ends of the... Uh, um, of the kind of political continuum, the stress on a transnational Ummah calling the faithful to, uh, faithful to prayer but also to allegiance beyond the borders of the state. But if you look at the creation of the Middle East state system, uh, certainly from 1920 onwards and especially uh, after independence or after uh, the kind of post-colonial coups that seized the Middle Eastern states, what we've seen is the power of the state has become a key issue in radical Islamic philosophy. That, 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 that certainly Salafism has reshaped uh, itself to seize the power of the state and then Islamify Iraqi, uh, uh, Middle Eastern societies through that. So in a, a, what we've seen with the, with, with the, the, the comparative um, solidification of the state system in the Middle East and the growth of geographic as opposed to transnational Arab nationalism, geographic state-based nationalisms, that um, radical Islamic groups have started to fight on a national as opposed to a transnational basis. Now, if we look at the best scholarship on al-Qaeda, it stresses that al-Qaeda's um, triumvirate, its cabinet uh, around Osama bin Laden may well be transnational, but al-Qaeda's effective capacity is national. It's, more, it's better understood to be a coalition of nationalist groups 
funded and organized at a transnational basis. Now, if we look at that, I think uh, what we see in Iraq is an extreme form of, a homogen of, a, of a homogenizing of Islamism and nationalism. But if you look at the insurgency, for an example of this, that the, the insurgent groups that I study and that I've been interviewing are very clear to make a distinction between themselves as Iraqi Islamists and uh, um, Zakawa's organization as transnational. And in, in their publicity, in the vast majority of their website material and traffic, they keep stressing that. We are fighting a war of national liberation. He is a transnational chancer, pirateer, whatever. So I think, um, I think if Iraq does collapse, does further collapse, isn't reconstituted, the great danger is that Zaghawi or people like him will be able to carve out a stable platform from which, as we've already seen in, 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 in both Saudi Arabia and Jordan, with Jordan, with the hotel bombings, with the four or five key people that have either been shot, arrested, or given up um, al-Qaeda act, actives, act, actives in Saudi Arabia, who the regime have killed or captured, the, they have been training and operating in Iraq and coming back into Saudi Arabia. So there is the potential for um, contagion, for spread, but I think what's intriguing is, is the, the, the main powerful Islamism in Iraq itself is, is, is very heavily anchored into the geographic extent of the country and this national alignment. Could you spin out a little more of the functional components of a broader civil war? What it would look like? What would it take to actually, I mean, when you think about like Bosnia, you actually some pretty well-organized military uh, capacity, in the absence of a state, but yet residual elements of the state. And to really see a civil war at a large end scale, you have to have some capacity for organization and so forth. And is that really possible in this climate? Uh, how, how would it look like? I mean, how would it it's an excellent question. I exactly agree with the thrust of which, which why until even three or four weeks ago I wouldn't use term civil war because if you look at Bosnia and especially the example I know best Lebanon, you think about the Lebanese state uh, created by the National Pact in 1943 onwards we have what's that uh, decades for the uh, sectarian ethnic communities to solidify and to throw up a back room almost a, a, a communal depth from which they're malicious to argue that they're involved in protection, although that clearly wasn't the case, and it's important to keep in mind that the Lebanese civil war, especially towards the end, was as much between single communities as it was, but much internal to communities as it was between communities. However, I agree with the thrust, because if you look at Iraq, if you take that, that notion of societal atomization that Saddam Hussein perfected, I think, with a greater degree than anyone else, any other dictator in the Middle East, that the civil war has started from a very disorganized base. So if you look at the key fighters, you've got the Badr Brigade, the militia of the Supreme Council of the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, created in 1982 in Iran, trained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and officer corps at least until they came into Iraq by uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. So that is a, uh, an institutional capacity that's foreign, or foreign created and be brought back in. And it's no surprise, I think, that the Badr are the most, the largest tens of thousands, I would have thought, and they've integrated themselves very effectively into the police force and to some extent the army across the south of Iraq. 
We then got Sada's own group, estimated especially after the uh, two revolts to be about 10,000. Indigenous, much more ad hoc, much more fluid. Yeah, um, so if that, if that, and then under that, you've got a much more ad hoc, reactive way. So the, um, the suburb of Baghdad I used to live in is a place called Ghazalia. And, and the street I used to live on is now protected by six or seven men who had heavy weapons and military training. So they threw a cordon around the street and then, in a form of quasi-protectionism, delivered protection to that street and justified it in terms of sectarianism. We're all sunnis on the street, therefore we're protecting you because we're sunnis. And I think in that, that example, you have a, a grouping stepping into a vacuum uh, and then extracting money from the population it claims to be protecting on a very ad hoc and fractured basis. So against that background, what we see are you know, we see the, the more sectarian and less nationalist end of the um, insurgency, especially just below Baghdad around that small town of Iskandaria, which in, in the so-called Triangle of Death, engaged quite heavily in sectarian murders. Um, and then we see Zakawi clearly publicly committed to triggering uh, civil war. But, the, uh, but for it to become in the civil war, as, as you would imagine, then you'd need a, a much greater solidica solidification. However, that said, the, the academic definition of civil war by Singer and people like that, which a, a thousand battlefield casualties in a primary internal civil war, we're there. So in a way, I think we're quibbling. What made me switch from calling it a civil war was the bombings of the... Uh, um, Askari shrines in Samara on February 22nd. Askari shrines are what very uh, holy um, burial places for the Shia religion. They were taken down, destroyed by a suicide bomber. We then had over 100 uh, Sunni mosques burnt in Baghdad, and I think it's the last count, 85,000 people displaced in what is, in effect, ethnic, ethnic cleansing. Now, that looks to me much more like... A, the, the sectarian dynamics going towards a civil war, but I'd agree with you in the sense that you've described the capacity is coming but is yet to arrive in terms of kind of grand battles of, of ethnic militia. Yeah. Um, you, you on the left first and you on the right second. I'm the Yes. I was at a meeting in Stanford three weeks ago, and a key oil technocrat was there, as was the two senior most State Department people responsible for Iraq. And the technocrat said, do you know there aren't meters on the main export pipes pumping oil down to the terminals in the south or across the border into Turkey? And the two State Department people said, oh, yes, there are. And this guy said, oh, no, they're not. I've just come from Baghdad. They weren't metering the flow of oil going out of Iraq, which means that it was being sold and diffused very liberally through the political parties that were in charge of the oil ministry. Now, if you speak to senior oil executives in the large oil majors, they would say that less than 45% of oil revenues, i.e. the money being made from selling oil, actually makes it back into the Iraqi exchequer, Iraqi treasury. And that's against the background of the pipelines being the most vulnerable uh, and the tanker traffic being the most vulnerable uh, spaces, place target for um, insurgents to attack. So you've got rampant corruption, but also violent destabilization. So what, what oil does get out 
well under half of it gets back into the Iraqi treasury and a lot of the oil doesn't get out because it gets caught up in violence as it, uh, as it moves out of the country. Okay, so the government we have at the moment was elected in January 2005 and was elected um, during the uh, Sunni boycott, so, or during the boycott driven by Sunni politicians and groups that claim to it. So it, it, the Constitution has a very weak prime minister, and, um, which gives quite strong power to ministers who are then appointed by, by their parties within the United Iraqi Coalition, the, Shia, the main Shia electoral vehicle. This means, that the, the, the downside of this means that ministries have now become the personal fiefdoms of individuals who are, in, um, who are appointed them. So the Ministry of Interior, for example, run by Bayan Jabbar until he gets replaced any day soon, one would hope, has become the vehicle for basically death squads. That Bayan Jabbar was a Bada commander, spent a lot of time in exile, came back, set up, so a series of special commando units, one of which particularly feel is called the Wolf Commando Unit, that has gone out and basically assassinated, one would assume, much like the you know, assassinated figures of influence within the insurgency and then gone beyond that and is just assassinating Sunni members of society. So if we were living in a Sunni community, we'd see individuals arrested by Minister of Interior troops and policemen and then we'd find them the next day shot or with their throats slit on, on rubbish dump. So in that sense, you've got both a highly decentralized, so you've got a state collapse. The ministries are all within the green zone or heavily protected, so they're, they're deeply removed from society. The ministries themselves have become personal fiefdoms of those whom they were given to, which means you've got high corruption and autonomy, and m most egregiously with the Ministry of Interior, that has, that has resulted in quite extreme what we call death squadism or, or abuse of the rule of law. Does that answer your question? Okay, thanks. I think it's a good question. I think if, if you look at the Constitution as signed, as drafted rather haphazardly and as um, voted for in the constitutional referendum and also in 2005, the Constitution is highly, radically decentralized. It's a federal constitution where the central government has no tax raising power, where the federal government has control over existing oil revenues and existing water resources, but none over uh, those to be... Um, those to be discovered and exploited, and Iraq has got one of the most underexploited oil fields in the world. So basically, the, the, the Constitution, driven forward initially by the Kurdish Democratic Party and the Patagonian Union of Kurdistan, has been highly decentralized. However, the Supreme Council of the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, this other Shia group, uh, also decided partway through the negotiations to also agree to a decentralized constitution. So that's as things stand. Uh, the American government, in the through the vehicle of uh, uh, Zal Khalilzad, the ambassador, has forced them to commit 
to redraft in the Constitution, um, but I doubt that very much will happen. So I think that Constitution will stay, but my great um, frustration or point about this issue is they've, they've spent a year drafting a Constitution for a state that doesn't exist. They spent a year fighting over a, a, a series of pieces of paper when they should have been building the institutional capacity before they argued over it. They spent a year locked in the highly fortified green zone while the country went to rack and ruin. So I think, it, it, in my view, that would be bad strategic decision, bad strategic deployment of efforts to the point of recklessness. Now, where does that leave us? I think uh, KDP and the PUK are committed to staying within the country and committed to a, a highly federalized, de de decentralized system. Skiriar, the vast majorities of, of Sonnies who, who voted in the, uh, the referendum voted against it, so you've got 20% of the population are militantly against that. But you've got a state that doesn't exist. So I think the danger is that, as, and this is where the Joe Biden initiative comes in, as the, uh, the U.S. government look around for a way of getting out of that, and I think their position is unsustainable, they're looking for a way of getting a political dispensation, a political settlement that allow them to extract themselves. I think that's what Joe Biden's doing. I think the argument that you can divide Iraq into three easy pieces is a, a semi, a historically illiterate misreading of Iraqi history. So Baghdad has a population of five million, uh, the majority of which are Shia, the minority of which are Kurd. How are you going to divide Baghdad? When you come down into the south of the country, you have these two warring Shiite groups, Sadas and Skiris, both claiming to represent the Iraqi Shias who have been fighting a nascent civil war between themselves. So I think Iraq won't divide, and I think the Constitution at the moment isn't a vehicle for state building. So if anything, the commitment to radical decentralization has exacerbated the problem, not, uh, not stabilized it. I think our time is up. Uh, thank you all very much for coming.